We all come from a mother. You may not have them in your life, you may have a mother-type figure, but motherhood is an undeniable part of being human. This week, we're going to talk about moms. Welcome to the Anthrophiles. I'm Katrina. I'm Sarah. And I'm Emily. And we're the Anthrophiles. <laughs> so, I have told you guys before that I'm a master's student at UAlbany, and I take a class on gender, and we read a lot of books. So... I read a book recently called The Wages of Motherhood, Inequality in the Welfare State, 1917 to 1942 by Gwendolyn Mink. And although today we won't be talking about the welfare state, it really got me thinking about motherhood across cultures. Mink explores the ways in which maternalist reforms took the form of laws providing for state assistance for mothers with young children. Maternalism is a variety of ideologies that attempted to elevate women's capacity to mother. However, in this era, many immigrants were intertwined in American society and maternalist reformers, white women, had to grapple with the mothering tactics used by black and immigrant mothers when they were creating their policies. So they advertised the correct ways to mother a child, which included a lot of racially charged language that targeted black and immigrant mothers. And for example, which I thought was at the same time very sad and hilarious, They were particularly concerned with the immigrant diet and its effect on digestion, as well as its nutritional value. This meant that babies should not be given cooked or pickled cabbage, stews, raw fruits and vegetables. Children shouldn't eat pork or game or highly spiced and over-seasoned food, and so much more. It basically targeted Southern and Eastern European cuisines as bad for kids. So think about if a white woman was telling you you cannot give your child garlic. It was, it was insane. So, That's a lot. Do you know why they labeled those foods as bad? Like, obviously, like, it was xenophobic. But, like, is there, was there, like, reasoning behind it? Or were they just, like, labeling whatever food they wanted? Well, I think if you think of, like, pickled cabbage and stews, mm-hmm. that's, like, highly flavored mm-hmm. and also salty. And then same with highly spiced overseasoned foods. I think they were just, like, it's too strong mm-hmm. and bad. Yeah. I don't I'm not sure about pork or game or raw fruits and vegetables. I feel like today we give children fruits and vegetables all the time. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to be good for them. But we could get into so much more about why this was and what it all has to do with welfare, but I definitely suggest checking out the book if you're more interested. I start off with this because I began to wonder what motherhood is like in other cultures. My mom grew up in a very traditional Irish household. Her father was a working man who embodied the persona of a family man in the 1950s. One thing that was always instilled in my mom was how important family is. So growing up, we constantly visited our grandparents and other family members, and we were taught how crucial it was to spend time with them and respect our elders. I'm sure you guys have heard that term all the time, Mm -hmm. (laughs) respect your elders. So even as a busy teenager and now young adult, I always made time to visit with my grandparents and it was never forced and never felt like a chore. Now I actually take care of one of my grandfathers and it's the best job in the world because I get to spend time with him every day. This is just one thing I think of when thinking of how my mother brought up me and my brother. Can you guys think of any particularly unique things your mother's taught you as a child, values or traditions? I don't know if they're like necessarily unique, but I definitely relate to you in that like my mom and my dad like made it so 
felt like spending time with my my grandparents was something like I wanted to do instead of something I felt like I had to so now even today like um, I like I like going over and visiting them like I'll stop by like whenever right Um, and like family means a lot to me now I think because of that yeah I mean same here it seems like we all came from similar households in that sense like visited the grandparents a lot still do visit the grandparents pretty freak like when I can when I can get to them because you know college makes it harder Mm -hmm. but um yeah and then just like being with family a good amount of the time for sure I was so shocked as a child when kids in my elementary school would tell me that they weren't close with their grandparents or they didn't like speak to their grandparents and obviously as a kid I didn't understand that families are super complicated and they all look very different I know I know what you mean and I think for for me and I don't know this might not be super unique but it also might be I don't really know how other people's like family dynamics were especially when growing up but I know my grandmother in particular had um like retired and had a lot of free time around like when I was a baby so like when my mom and dad were working like I would go over my grandparents house So, you know, I was like half raised in my grandparents' house because they would watch me during the day while my parents were at work. So me too, actually. My dad's mother, so my grandmother, she took care of me as a baby while my mom went back to work and my dad went to work. So I have very fond memories of watching Oprah with her. (laughs) (laughs) So my mom is a single mom, and despite all the obstacles she's faced, I couldn't imagine having anyone else to help guide me through life. Yet, my family is not what you would consider traditional or nuclear. What do you guys think of when you think of the perfect American traditional family? I think of the mom, dad, son, daughter, dog, white picket fence, like, little house. That's what pops in my head immediately. Yeah, like that typical, like, 1950s American family. Mm -hmm. Right? So, that type of family only dates back a century to Victorian times, and in America, it's attributed to the 1950s, like you said. According to the cultural stereotype, the mother cared for the children while the father went off to his job, even though there was only a small period in time when a single wage earner could reliably and predictably support an average family. I feel like that's really hard these days. Yeah. It can mm-hmm. be done. This myth of the nuclear family, with a nurturing mother at home and a providing father at work, became an American ideal. But do children really develop best or better in this ideal history? Sarah Blaffer Hardy's book, Mothers and Others, The Evolutionary Origins of Mutual Understanding, focuses on the evolutionary aspect of mothering. She says that the suggestions that paternal investment is an essential determinant of child and societal well-being or that the best way to rear children is in a nuclear family, or that a man whose paternity confidence is high will be willing to care for children, not only shape public policy, they also shape the questions researchers ask. So these studies focus on contrasting outcomes when children are raised by a single mom or both parents. But really what these research studies are lacking are questions about what happens to children in the wide variety of other human social arrangements. Of course, we know that families look very different no matter where you go in the U.S. and even the rest of the world. One thing I thought was super interesting was adding extra fathers or parts of fathers. Hardy says that among Eskimos, the Montanay, Naskapi, and some other North American Indian tribes, as well as among Central American people like the Siriano and many tribes in Amazonian South America, 
as well as across the ocean in parts of pre- and post-colonial West, women are permitted or even encouraged to have sex with real or fictive brothers of their husbands. A range of innovations permits mothers in traditional societies from southwestern China and central Japan, as well as among people like the Lucy of Papua New Guinea and areas of Polynesia, to line up extra fathers. Even in times and places that are known for the patriarchal family structure, such as the Qing dynasty in China or in traditional India, desperately poor parents sometimes made ends meet by incorporating an extra man, preferably some kind of wage earner, into the marital unit. Across Amazonia, among forager horticulturalists like the Bari of Venezuela, the Ache of Paraguay, Guayano of French Guiana, the Matisse of Peru, the Tacana of Bolivia, and quite a few populations in Brazil, it is socially acceptable, even expected, for a husband to permit real or fictive ceremonial brothers to sleep with his wife. It's a lot. Yeah. Have mm. you guys ever heard of that? Mm-mm. I have not. I also thought it was really interesting that you said that if, like, a family was struggling financially, I think you said in, somewhere in China, I don't remember what time period, mm-hmm. but they would bring in another male breadwinner rather than have, like, like the woman or the other, like, adult in the family, like, go out and bring in money. Right. That's an interesting point. Yeah. If they had a, a traditional, like, woman and man in the household, mm-hmm. they wouldn't have the woman attempt to get a job yeah there's definitely a lot there i mean Mm -hmm. i wonder if that's just like the expectation for the woman to like watch the children Mm -hmm, and like tend the house and like that it's like the the spheres of like gender yeah and like that's so ingrained that like instead of having the woman potentially like earn money you just bring in another man Mm -hmm. (laughs) so you can see obviously that there are many different reasons why there may be multiple fathers in a child's life But we should definitely go back to moms. (laughs) Hardy says that all of the attachments that mammal babies can form, the most powerful is that between babies and their mothers. Human babies, although similar to their primate counterparts, come into the world very differently, which means mothering can look pretty different as well. They are born to a hairless mother whose commitment to her infant is contingent on far more than her own prior experience or physical condition. Her commitment depends as well on her assessment of her baby's particular attributes and on how much social support she anticipates receiving. Which brings me to the question, how do mothers love differently across cultures? In my research, I stumbled across an article from the Toronto Star titled Mothers Love Differently Around the World by Marco Schoen Ovid. And Ovid details the research of Jennifer Lansford, a professor of psychology and cultural anthropology at Duke University in North Carolina, and she surveyed some 1,400 mothers and children in nine countries. It's very well researched. Her book with W. Andrew Rothenberg and Mark H. Bornstein, Parenting Across Cultures from Childhood to Adolescence, Development in Nine Countries, was published this year. Before I start, we all have the experience of being mothered in the U.S., so how do you think mothers make their children feel loved in America? Can use your own experience or just like I feel like inference? oh that's a really good question I didn't, I've never thought about that before I feel like a lot of like physical and emotional affection for sure and then I f- feel like maybe like through acts as well if that makes any sense like baking or like buying you a new shirt or something like that yeah right I definitely think like the same like a lot of emotional support as mm-hmm. well as like physical hugs and like yeah you know, 
things like that and just having like an overall like presence yeah and teaching too yeah. right mm-hmm. even if it's just like helping with homework at the dinner table or like mm-hmm. teaching you how to like fold laundry you know right have you guys heard of the five love languages yes i don't know what they are but i know what you're talking about yeah so things like physical touch mm-hmm. gift giving things like that that's sort of how ovid writes about lansford's research so Lansford says we see a good mother in the U.S. as being reactive and responding to the child's needs by feeding or changing them when they cry. In contrast, mothers in Japan are more proactive. They attempt to prevent crying before it happens. And in the U.S., the mother waits for the baby to show distress before responding, which teaches it to express its needs, and therefore it's kind of more independent. And in Japan, the relationship is more interdependent. Hmm. U.S. mothers also express love with physical affection and praise, but this is not the case in other parts of the world. So you were right. (laughs) In Bangladesh, mothers show affection by acts of service, such as peeling an orange and feeding the segments to their child. In Scandinavian countries, mothers tend to let their children make more decisions, and they push independence. In each of these places, mothering practices that are acceptable may be seen in a completely different light, And Lansford makes a good point when she says that it's hard to draw any kind of conclusion about these techniques because it comes down to context. So she's saying you can't say one is necessarily right or wrong Mm -hmm. or better than the others. I did watch a YouTube video on this as well, sort of going along the same, like, how mothers love in other cultures. And I know in Scandinavian countries, certain ones, I want to say it's Sweden – they don't allow spanking of children. Okay. And I know, like, in the U.S., there's definitely been, like, a movement away from that mm-hmm. as well. But that's kind of what I thought of, how that's acceptable in some cultures but not in others. Yeah. What do you guys think? I mean, I don't think you should hate your kids. <laughs> <laughs> Opinions on spanking, anybody? <laughs> <clears throat> um, sometimes, though, or at least I know – when I was younger, it was more of, like, the threat of it happening was the punishment. <laughs> yeah. Rather than, like, actually getting hurt. Like, it was, you know. Yeah. Like, my parents never yeah. hurt No, me. I spanking <laughs> or anything like that was not a thing in my household yeah. either. But I know what you mean where it's, like, if when cultures are so different, you can't, like, judge another one from your own cultural right. perspective. For sure. I think it, it also goes back to that idea that mothers are relying on their prior experience so a lot of the times if they were like hit as a child that Mm -hmm. sounds really aggressive but like spanked I guess as a child then they may spank their children as well because they saw it as like an effective means of discipline Mm -hmm. yeah I guess that makes sense like however you were mothered unless like you actively choose to not mother in that way Mm -hmm. then you end up doing it Right. Have you guys seen that commercial where it's the insurance commercial where <laughs> they show the people like turning yes. into their parents? I love those commercials. Yeah. My mom loves those commercials. Exactly. <laughs> and I feel like it's so accurate. Sometimes I, I find myself using phrases that my mom uses mm-hmm. and I'm like, oh, no, <laughs> I'm not a 60 year old woman. I'm turning into my mother already. But we can see how like a mother has such a deep effect on their children um, but it it really does depend on the culture that they were brought up in and then the culture that 
they choose to bring their child into. And I'd also like to make the point that we now recognize that there are pregnant people who are not women and don't see themselves as mothers technically. So I think that we have to really embrace the idea that there are so many different ways to structure a family. Mm-hmm. Um, there are different genders, there's transgenderism, and it's really extended that range of who has babies. Um, but the point is we all have caregivers, even if we don't have mothers necessarily. But I feel like motherhood sort of stands as that caregiver role, mm-hmm. sort of an interchangeable word. Yeah, I feel like you could separate, like, like mothering and, like, you know, ha- being that figure in someone's life from, like, actually being, like, female or, like, gendering it. Like, a, yeah. it's more of, like, a concept rather than, like, a gendered that yeah that's yeah. what i mean like motherhood is more so a concept of of caregiving and like extreme care and attention mm-hmm. to a child and like really involved with affection yeah more so than like like it's not genetic or yeah. even gendered all the time right mm-hmm. that's pretty much all i have but thank you so much for listening to this season we will see you all soon for season three for a full list of my sources you can check out the link tree in our Anthrophiles Instagram. I'd also like to thank Professor Sarah Reedy and Hillary Haldane for supporting me with this script. Music is Find Your Way, found by Emily from the YouTube Free Music Library. Cover art was made by Katrina using Canva. Also, special thanks to Renette Shefu, our producer and editor, Jacqueline Callanan and Katrina for handling our social media, and David DeRoche in the QU Podcast Studio for producing this podcast and making it possible. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and find us on social media as The Anthrophiles on Instagram and Twitter.